Acts chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be and looking this morning at this uh, one great event. Now, we've, not last week, because it was Easter the week before, we finished Acts chapter 2, which was about the, the church and what it looked like to be in the early church. And I said then that those verses, those last few verses of Acts chapter 2 were kind of a, a general overview of what it was like to live in the early church. And it gave us some of the... The, the key thoughts about, about uh, following the apostles' doctrine and living together and praying together and, and all of those wonderful things that, that gave this church life and as God uh, inputted, infused his power into them, what it was like. Now, as we move into chapter 3, we get some, some specific examples of that. So we had the general overview, this is what it was like and this is what, uh, what the character of the church was like in the, the early days. And so now we get a, a few examples of how that played out and what it looked like in the early church and what took place. Um, so we, we see some specific examples of that, how they regularly meet together for, for teaching and for prayer together. Um, we see here in chapter 3 and, and further the power of God that works through the apostles to establish the, the church and, and the gospel of Christ and and we see over and over again, through all of those things, through everything that happens, the witness of Jesus Christ through it. Now, as we come here to chapter 3, um, in fact, why don't we read it? We're going to read, we'll read through the whole, whole chapter to begin with because it starts, it's in two sections. The first, uh, first 10 verses are a miracle, and the second part of that, from verse 11 to 26, is the explanation of that miracle. So it says here in... Uh, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, 
of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, whom was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. May the Spirit use it in power this morning to encourage us to fix our eyes on you see your beauty and your power and your glory, to uplift your name in praise and honor. Thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This is one of those great Bible stories which has been immortalized in kids' action songs. And uh, I was tempted to get us all up to sing and dump and, and praise the Lord together in, in uh, the action songs, but, but we won't. But it, it's those songs which are designed to, to help us learn the stories, but get out a little bit of energy, that um, he went walking and leaping and praising God. Here we see another part of that same pattern that we've been seeing, which continues its way through the, the book of Acts in the early part particularly, is that we see here a miracle followed by the message. And it happens this way all along. We see the miracle take place as we did with the, the gift of tongues in the beginning and then the explanation. And here we have it. Peter and John perform a miracle and then Peter explains that miracle in his message there in the temple. And that's exactly what the apostles' miracles were meant. They were meant to establish them as bearers of truth, to open the door, to gather a crowd so that they could prepare and present the message of God's gospel. Um, never let an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and the truth pass. And they certainly did not. Great, uh, great thing about this is that we're not just left in wonder and amazement. So, and, and that's the, the great thing about this pattern of miracle message is we have the miracle and we're not just left with the miracle as the people were to be in wonder and amazement at what God did, but then Peter explains to us and he draws us more deeply into this to see the the glory of what has just happened, that there is more going on here than just a man who can walk, that there is something magnificent, something glorious, something truly amazing behind the miracle. 
the theme of all of this, so the theme that runs through the miracle, and then what Peter shows us is, is the theme here. We find in verse 16, it says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. The theme of Peter's message, the theme of what goes on here, is the name of Jesus. The miracle we see in, in verse 6, so when, when Peter comes to me, he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have to offer you is this, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The miracle is performed in the name of Jesus Christ, and Peter's message revolves around that very thing. It was the name, the power of the name of Jesus Christ, and by faith in that name that brought about this glorious Miracle, proclaiming the mighty power of the name of Jesus. You know, there are many popular preachers on TV and the prosperity preachers and, and many others around who like to tell us that we can do amazing things and even call things into existence in our own lives and it's just by, by using or by invoking the name of Jesus. We can say, in the name of Jesus, pay this bill, and, and, and ridiculous things like that. And that's what they tell us the name of Jesus can be used for. You just have to believe, they say. And in the name of Jesus, these things will happen. And it is almost always, when you hear these, almost always, 99% of the time, when they speak these things, it is at using the name of Jesus for selfish benefit in temporary things. For our own gain, very rarely does it have at its heart the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. See, the power in Jesus' name is not that lame. Let's be honest, that's a really, really lame way to use the name of Jesus for our own benefit. The name of Jesus is far more powerful far more magnificent, far more glorious than the pathetic ways we are so often told and hear about how to use the name of Jesus. So this morning, as we look at what Peter has to say here and through this, this, this miracle, how is Jesus' name powerful? What does it mean for us to know the power of Jesus' name? And that's where we're going to start, firstly, this morning, is considering the power of Jesus' name name. And we're going to look at the work that takes place in the name of Jesus, this miracle that, that brings this all together at the beginning, where Peter and John, on their way to uh, the temple to pray, meet this man, perform a miracle, and there he is. So let's consider that, that miracle. As we said, it is this, this work of God which leads to the word of God, which then takes us to worship God. And so let's look at the work of God here in Jesus' name. The text indicates to us about Peter and John that this was their regular habit. So every day, uh, in the morning and in the afternoon, as was normal for the Jewish people, they would go to pray at the temple, pray and be taught and learn through it. Uh, and you know, though they, they were, were distancing themselves now from the Jewish religion, they still kept many of the Jewish traditions, but it had new meaning. Now they were going to the temple to, to pray and to speak of, of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel that came through Jesus Christ to the people of God. And so the, the people of the, the, the early church would, would gather together there at, and pray in, in, in the temple. 
and they would testify of Jesus. The ninth hour, it tells us, is is three o'clock in the afternoon. That was a regular time of prayer for the Jews. It tells us that they enter in through the beautiful gate. Um, And this is just to give you a little bit of the situation of it. We're not certain which gate this is. Um, As History doesn't record too much about what it is. What most of the early tradition and most of the early writers uh, suggest is that this this beautiful gate was on the eastern side of the temple you enter in and was probably the gate uh, most well-known because of its ornate beauty because it was made from Corinthian bronze. It was said that this gate was worth more than all the other gates adorned in gold and silver. It was beautifully ordained and, and, and with ornate through it and had, had this, this Corinthian bronze, which was well sought after in the day as the gate, and which is probably why it became known as the beautiful gate on the eastern side of the temple as they walked in. If it is this gate that we, we think it is, then this was the gate that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. So as you went into the temple, there were certain places where you could or could not go depending on who you were. If you were a Gentile, um, you could go as far as the first court, which was the court of the Gentiles. Then you could go uh, further than that if you were not a Gentile, and that was the court of the women. There, that's where the women would meet and, and worship and pray together. And then the men would go further in, and then, of course, the priests right into the, the inner part. This seems to be the one that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, which puts it in a good place for that because this is the place where most everybody is going to be at that, that place. As they sit, they walk in there, they meet a lame man. Maybe they'd seen him there before because he was there every day. He was well known, uh, as we see in verse 10, that people knew who he was. So he sat at the gate asking for a gift of money. He was part of a social arrangement, uh, if you, you will. So the arms, when it says he was asking for arms, that's not just asking for money. It was asking for a gift to relieve the poor. Arms was a gift to relieve the poor. So here at the gate, he could receive money and that would help him. So as he begged and as he asked for money, that money that was given to him would certainly help him in his needs and in his life. But at the same time, part of this social arrangement which went on is, yes, it would benefit him, but also it meant that as the people were going in to worship, they could give themselves a little bit of merit because they would offer money to the poor. And so by him being there, he benefited, and the people, through a meritorious act, could gain favor with God, at least they thought, because as they entered into the temple to worship, they worshiped by giving to the poor. Now, giving is a form of worship, but it is not a form of finding merit with God. Um, but that's what they, they thought. They thought as they entered in, by giving to him, they would have a little bit more favor with God as they went in to worship. So there is where we find the miracle. There is so much wonderful about the interaction that takes place in this miracle. Um, they, they look at him. And they ask him to, to look back at him. So it's, it's not glancing and it, it's not, uh, not, not a nervous look over there, but it's a look with, with intent. It's a look with compassion. 
we know before and we've talked before and, and we, we experience it often that you know, when you see people destitute, sometimes we, we avert our eyes from them. And, and for most people, they're going to walk in and it's simply a matter of just, just tossing the money over to him as they enter in. There's probably very few people who, who knew this man or really looked at this man. And here, as Peter and John walk in, they look at him and they say, look at us in the eyes. Look at us. There's intent and there is compassion in that look. Now, when he looks at them, he's expecting a gift. Perhaps he's expecting something large because there's uh, you know, this drama being made about it. You know, If you're going into the temple and you're only going to give a little bit, you're just going to pop a little bit in and just keep watching. But if you're going to give a big portion or a, a big gift to this one, you want everybody to know so you gain more favor. So maybe he's thinking, ah, I've got some rich guys here. They're going to really give me something great. So he's expecting something great. But they don't give him money. They give him life. They give him something that the money can't buy. Something that the rest of his life will be changed forever. Peter makes it clear later that this wasn't them, but that it was Jesus. Which is why he says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And then he makes that clear in his sermon. Don't look at us as if we made him walk. We didn't do that. Immediately. So immediately and completely he is healed. There are no tricks here. There's no deception. There's, there's no temporalness to this. He is genuinely, truly, miraculously healed in that very moment. His response is, is what we would expect. His healing is so complete that as Peter lifts him up and takes him by the hand and, and lifts him up, he doesn't kind of just, it says he leapt up. Right, So even as Peter grabs his hand, he knows, I can get up. And he doesn't gingerly get up. He leaps up. He leaps up, and he leaps with joy. I imagine this man uh, kind of like a toddler. I mean, we've had one around our house for a while, so it's fresh in, in my mind. Right? When, when a toddler is first learning to walk and finds their feet, you know what they're like. They, they run everywhere, and they jump. Everything is jumping. Just jumping and hopping and, and running, and they just do not stop. And that's the kind of feeling I get from this man here. He's, I mean, he, here is a man who has never, ever walked. And now he, ha- he walks, and he jumps up, and he's running, and he's leaping, and he's running around, and he's praising God because his legs work. He has never, ever walked. And now he can. Running around, praising God. And this... this Hour of prayer at the temple is now completely interrupted by this lunatic running around praising God. The shouts of joy echo through the whole temple as God has done something amazing in his life. It tells us later in verse 11 that that he is so thankful, that he is so overjoyed that he will not leave Peter and John. He keeps grabbing onto them and he keeps following. He he just cannot leave them. His, His heart is overflowing with praise for God and thankfulness. And the miracle does its purpose. It says in verse 11, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together 
to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So the miracle does its work. It draws a crowd. And the people are there. And so Peter doesn't waste the opportunity. It's there. And he's going to tell them what this is all about. This is his God-given opportunity to preach the wonder of Jesus' name. The wonder of Jesus' name. Jesus' name is a powerful name. This whole event, the whole sermon and the the miracle, it's all built around Jesus' name. We saw in verse 6, that's how he was healed. He was healed in the name of Jesus. Peter is then going to go on to explain the power of Jesus' name. And we've seen that in verse 16, that that's kind of the climax, the theme of his sermon. But why all of this emphasis on the name of Jesus? Why a whole sermon pointing us to the name of Jesus? Why use the name of Jesus to heal this man? You know, in, in ancient times, and in, in, in Jews particularly, especially, a name wasn't just an identifier. So it wasn't just, oh, that's a, t- a tag, and that's who that is, and that's who that is. It wasn't just an identifier. Names were very important to the Jews. Often when they had children, they would think very carefully about choosing a name for that child. Maybe it had to do with their family heritage, or maybe it had to do with their circumstances, as we often see through the Old Testament. Or we see, you know, through Old and New Testaments, names changed because of circumstances or things like that. Jesus gives, uh, gives uh, uh, P- uh, um, uh, Peter his name, Peter. And Levi and Matthew, they all have these, these other names which represent other things or other places. Abram changed to Abraham and so on. Because these names represented something important to indicate an important event, important part of their life or something that God had done. Because name was connected to nature. The name was connected to nature. It didn't just separate you from other people. So it wasn't just a matter of we've got a group of people, we need some way to separate them, so we'll just give people names, and in that way we know who's who. The name was about character. It associated you with your character. It identified who you are. Who you are. Not just the name that is important, but who is expressed by that name. So when we talk about the name of Jesus, we're not just talking about tagging a person or identifying a person. To use the name of Jesus, when they speak of the name of Jesus, we're talking about the nature of that person, the character that is attached to that name. That person. The name of Jesus signifies his character. It signifies his authority. It signifies his power. You're just like when you think of me, you think of handsome and eloquent and intelligent. Or actually probably more the opposite of all of those things. But a name brings to mind character. Who that person is. What they are like. His name is powerful. Not because it's a great name. His name is powerful because he is a great person. He is a great person. Why is his name 
so powerful. In verse 13, it's part of Peter's sermon. He says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Why is his name so powerful? His name is so powerful because of the sacrifice that he made. The work that he did. The great passages. And and I think it, it... explains so much of what we see here in the name of Jesus, expressed in the name of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. One of those great passages of who Jesus is. It says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is what he did. And in response, it says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. His name is powerful because of the sacrifice that he made, the work that happened because of who he is. We'll see later in another uh, sermon, another work in in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven among among men by which we can be saved. Paul would write to the Romans expressing the glory of salvation and what happens and how salvation is attained. And he says in Romans 10 verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why the name of the Lord? Because the name of the Lord is the expression of all he is and all he has done. It is a powerful name because he died, because he rose again, and he ascended on high and reigns. His name is powerful. Jesus' name is not a magic word. It it doesn't, doesn't work to just say Jesus' name... And then things happen, or power works, or or something goes. His name is not a magic word. It's power. The power of the name of Jesus is connected to belief in who he is. Not just belief about him, but belief in who he is. If there is no belief, in who Jesus is, that he is the living, risen, ascended Savior, then there is no power for you in Jesus' name. This is why our text says in verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. It is a powerful name. It is a precious name. Peter enhances his his message and he he fills his message by using a number of names and titles for Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. So he doesn't just say Jesus' name is powerful. He then takes these things and he says, let's see what the name of Jesus means. Let's see who this represents. And he, he scatters through his sermon five or six different names and titles of Jesus from the Old Testament. To tell us why believing in the name of Jesus is so powerful. 
He does that so that we will connect the name of Jesus with the character of Jesus. That we will see the two together. So we don't just think of the man, but we we think of the great character and belief. These are names which the Jews connected with the Messiah. So Peter does this deliberately. He puts in these names which were connected with the Messiah and shows that they are Jesus. Let's consider just for a moment, real quickly, these these few names here. And I've, I've put some these in your notes, and I've put just a couple of verse references through there because can I suggest that through this week, you take these names, these five or six names, and you ponder on them this week. Take the verses that are in there. If you've got a concordance, open up the concordance and follow it through. But ponder these names in regards to who Jesus is and see the preciousness of his name, the first name that he uses, says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. Servant. Servant is one of the precious names of Jesus. It means that he is God's personal representative. Isaiah 52, which leads us into 53, which is the suffering servant passage. But Isaiah 52 and verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Jesus told us in the the Gospels as he lived here that he came to do the will of the Father. To serve the Father's will. He came, he tells us in in Matthew 20 and in other places, that he came not to serve, but to be served and give his life as a ransom for many. He came as a servant. He came to serve by paying the debt for our sins. He is a servant. Verse 14, Peter uses this title. He says, but you denied the Holy One and the just. Another one of the great Old Testament phrases for the Messiah, the Holy One and the just. Now notice the context that Peter puts that that name in. It says, but you denied the Holy One and the just. And what did they do? They asked for a murderer to be granted instead. It is here, you had the holy and the just, and instead you chose a murderer. And he goes on and killed the prince of life. Jesus is holy and just, and he was traded for a murderer and killed. That's the exact opposite. They have acted in the exact opposite way to who Jesus is, that he is just and holy in all. Psalm 16, verse 10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He is without sin, perfectly pure in every way. He is just and right in every possible sense. He shows our guilt before a perfect God. He is a servant. He is the Holy holy One and the just In verse 15, as we read just a second ago, he is the prince or the author of life. The author of life says that they killed. They killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To be the author or the prince of life is to be the beginning, to be the originator, to be the creator, 
He is the one who creates life. John tells us in John chapter 1 that in him is life. He gave us life. It tells us in John 3.16 that through him we have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life, this eternal life, is in his son. He is the author, the prince of life. He continues on in his sermon to verse 18 where he says, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He is the prophet. Or the Christ, I should say here, it tells us he is the Christ, that the Christ would suffer. Christ is the Messiah, the promised king. He is the one being hoped for. He will rule and he will reign over all. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ. He connects two of the titles and names of Christ, Jesus and Christ. Christ, as we saw just a moment ago, the promised king, the Messiah, the great one to come, the promised one to come. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. This Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And then in verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, whom you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. He is a prophet. Here he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Passage the people knew well. The Old Testament prophets spoke for God to the people. Jesus performs that role perfectly. He speaks perfectly to us of God. Of who God is and what God is like. He is full of wisdom. He speaks of God as God. He speaks to us today through his word. It is a powerful name. It is a precious name. It is a personal name. Like I said before, his name isn't a magic formula. You know, and, and it doesn't even matter. And work as a tagline at the end of our prayers. We end our prayers, and and we're told in Scripture to end our prayers in the name of Jesus. That is, through him and for him and in his his name. And and, and it's it's not just a tagline at the end. It's it's not a a, a magic formula. It's it's not a magic word. It's tied, like we said, to, to who he is. That is, apart from believing in Jesus, there is no power in his name for us. There is no power in his name if you do not believe who he is. The power of his name comes in relationship with him. Colossians chapter 3 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, everything you do, every part of your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, everything you do should be done in the name of Jesus. The power of Jesus' name 
is in living to do the will of Jesus. That's where the power of his name comes from, by living to do his will. To do all in the name of Jesus is to represent him in all we do. To represent him in all we do. As believers, we have permission to act on his behalf. To, to do all in the name of Jesus is to represent him in all we do, but also to use his resources in all that we do. To rely on his power, to follow his wisdom, and follow his guidance. You can only act in Jesus' name and expect the power of Jesus' name if you are acting according to his will. We're to live in the power of Jesus' name. Now, very quickly, I have two other things we'll look at, and these won't take long because this gets to, we've really kind of covered it, but I want to hone in on just a couple more things of this sermon. That is to proclaim the power of Jesus' name. Verse 16, he says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Faith in his name gives us life. So Peter's first response to what is the name of Jesus and where is the power of the name of Jesus is this, turn to Jesus, repent. The work of God gives opportunity to spread the word of God and that's what's happening here. I I love the way Peter addresses this. As you read through this, you can see Peter is, he is strong and he is pointed. He doesn't pull any punches. You killed Jesus. You traded him for a murderer. You denied who he was. You did this. He's straight. We need... We need more of that in modern Christianity, not less. We have far too much dilly-dallying around and, and trying to shift around. The reality is we need to understand our responsibility in what took place. We need to understand it wasn't just the Jews or the Romans that killed Jesus. I did it. And Peter is pointed in this way, but you'll also notice that while Peter is pointed and he says, you did this, he also softens that blow a little bit with understanding by saying, but you did it in ignorance. Now you'll notice that that ignorance doesn't excuse him. He doesn't offer him an excuse for that. He doesn't say, well, you didn't in ignorance, so it's all okay. It's an understanding. It's, it's, it's a, a, a statement of, look, I understand you didn't realize what you were doing. But you're still responsible for it. We went to the tip the other day. And uh, you know, my kids wanted to get out and, and see the, the tip. Because what kid doesn't want to get out of the tip? So we pulled in. I opened all the doors. I got the kids out. And uh, the lady comes up to me and she says, you've got to put your kids back in the car. You can't have them out here. And I said, oh, but they want to see it. I said, no, you can't have your kids. You, you've got to put the kids back in the car. And she pointed to a sign and said, no kids out of the car. I said, oh, I didn't see the sign. And she said, well, that's fine. Now you know the sign's there. Put your kids back in the car. Right? The ignorance I had about that sign, about the rules, did not change the fact I still had to put my kids in the car. 
I broke the law, even though I didn't know the sign was there. The same is true with Jesus. Right? It doesn't matter whether we know we're denying Jesus or whether we recognize that we are refusing Jesus or not. We are doing it. And that is the reality that we all find ourselves in. And this is what Peter points out to us. You did it. You may not have realized you were doing it, but you did it. But his message has hope. He's calling for them to have faith, to believe, to turn. And he says to them, as we read in verse 19, repent, turn to Jesus and be forgiven that your sins may be blotted out. Belief in Jesus brings forgiveness. And here's, here's the, the beauty right, of this passage and, and of what God does. He has just told them, you are guilty of killing Jesus. You did that. And many of those people there perhaps saw Jesus. Maybe they were in the crowd chanting. So they were actually there and they actually did have their hand involved in killing Jesus. And he says, even you, even you people who stood there and called for Barabbas instead of Jesus, even you, God will forgive. Even you. There is no limit to God's forgiveness when we turn to him. The sins are blotted out. We're no longer held accountable for them. The debt has been paid. And with forgiveness comes refreshing. Times of refreshing, he tells us in verse 19. The relationship that comes from Jesus and forgiveness brings comfort. It brings joy. It brings refreshment. The guilt and shame are taken away. The weight of judgment is taken away. Instead, we have a life of joy, freedom, and peace. So hear his call to life. It says, verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. This is a statement that Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. There is a clear sign of the messianic rule and reign here. Isaiah 35 tells us that one of the expectations they had of the Messiah was that the lame would leap. And they have seen that with their very own eyes. The name of Jesus, make the lame leap. It says, Jesus will come again. He is the great Messiah. And when he comes again, he is the one who holds the key to life and death. He says, hear him. Hear him because those who will not hear will find destruction. He holds the keys to life and death. And so finally, powerfully praise his name. Verse 8. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered into the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. What a wonderful verse verse 8 is. There are some skeptics who say verse 8 is faith and cl- is fake and clearly proves this is made up because it's just redundant. It says he's walking and leaping and then it says he's walking and leaping. Clearly, if you look at verse 8 and you see that and say, well, that can't be true, clearly you have absolutely no idea what God does in the life of people. Can you imagine if you could not walk ever, And then you can walk. How are you going to express that? Verse 8 is a verse which says, 
He was walking and he was leaping. And he praised God. He was walking and leaping and praising God. Do you not see that? Does that not fill your heart with amazement and wonder and joy and glory? He didn't walk and then he did. That's what verse 8 does. Which is why Peter can bring us all the way to the end of his sermon. And he reminds us of the promise that God made that, that he would be a blessing to all nations. And he says in verse 26, To you first, God having raised up Jesus, why did he send him? Sent him to bless you. Sent him to bless you. To pour joy. into So, so praise God to express your joy. The joy you have in his blessing. The joy you have in his forgiveness. It comes from seeing what God has done in your life. He's taken you from death to life. Praise God and powerfully praise God to honor God because he is worthy. He is worthy. Jesus doesn't deserve our praise just because he blesses us. Jesus deserves our praise because he is worthy of it in every possible way. Every possible way he is worthy of our praise because he is wonderful. And by wonderful, I mean he is, he is full of wonder. He is full of amazement. In, in every possible way, he is wonderful. And we powerfully proclaim the, and, and praise his name to testify to others. So that others can see that God is good. God is good. This lame man showed that God is good. Peter preached that God is good. Are we guilty? Yes. Is God forgiving? Yes. Proclaim the fullness of God's goodness. Because God is great. That he can and he does save from sin, no matter who you are, no matter what life you've had, no matter what has been behind you. That he can and that he does miraculous things in our lives. That when I seek to do the will of God, the power of God is at work through me. The name of Jesus is a powerful name. It's powerful because of who he is. He is the risen and reigning Savior. He is the coming King of Kings. Through faith in his name, you can know the power of his name. We sing uh, a song, you know, lift high the name of Jesus, and, and a line in it says, his power in us is greater, is greater than this world. We are people called by his name. Called by his name. That is, by adoption, we bear his name. We are his children. We are his. So let's bring honor and glory to that name. We have, by bearing his name, the permission to act on his behalf in pursuit of his will and the glory of his name. So let's live our lives to reveal the power of the name of Jesus. We have access to all of the resources of the name of Jesus. No more pursuing our own agendas. No more relying on our own strength and our own wisdom. 
He is our life. He is our strength. He is our wisdom. He is our power. One day, every single person will bow down in worship in the name of Jesus. doesn't matter who you are, believing or unbelieving. Every single person will bow down to Jesus. Let's begin that today. As we proclaim the salvation of Jesus Christ through what he has done for us and in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things we see and learn and grow. Today, dear God, we we give praise to your name. We honor you for all that you are and all that you have done. And we pray, dear God, that today as we we submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit, that in all we do, we would live the glory of the name of Jesus. Help us, strengthen us, and let that pursuit overflow from us so that others can see the glory, the greatness, and the goodness of our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.